Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Damien Latouf, welcome back to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thanks, Brad. It's uh, really great to be back. I'm excited. And we're joined by a very special co-host today, Michael Kenneth Whisks, Director, Co-Founder of Ocean Protect. Welcome, Michael. Long time listener, about fourth time caller, Brad. How are you? <laughs> I'm living the dream and keeping it real. Uh, oh, of course you are. Of um, and look, it's great to have Damien back because he featured on our podcast a couple of years ago. And if you haven't listened to that just yet, for all our amazing listeners, uh, it was season three, episode one, Snakes as a Bioindicator of Wetland Pollution. I was pleasantly surprised just a couple of days ago, I was scrolling through LinkedIn and one of my colleagues reshared a post about a pretty cool study that I thought, and I, as you do, you click on the link and lo and behold, the lead author of that study was none other than now Dr. Damien Latouf. And so quickly reached out and I went, Damien, can we get you back on the podcast? Very soon after, sure, let's do it. It's a real privilege to have you back. I think congratulations are in order. You're now a qualified doctorate. Yes. Is that what they call it? A PhD, a doctor, Damien Latouf? Yeah, that's right. And I got a dream postdoc with CSIRO after that, continuing in the I same know. research space. Congratulations. We were obviously probably in the in the mix of your PhD study findings at the time, but can you give people a recap? What, what was the uh, PhD all about and what were the major findings? We were looking at tiger snakes uh, in a couple of urban wetlands around Perth. Uh, they're known to persist in a few of the kind of bigger lakes that exist. We noticed that the snakes looked a little bit sickly, uh, particularly in one site, Herdsman Lake, uh, which is right by the city centre, and it's got a lot of stormwater drains going into an industrial area nearby. And we knew they kind of had some parasites, some worms living in their stomach, um, you know, which can lead to poor body condition and, and health implications. Um, but as soon as I kind of moved over to Perth from Sydney and, and saw this study area, you know, my first question was, well, what about pollution? You know, these snakes eat frogs, they live by the wetlands. Let's have a look what's in there. And there's not a lot of background literature for those particular sites. So we just did some broad scale screening on liver tissue, on snake scales. We found a bunch of metals in there, you know, maybe 26 different metals and metalloids in varying concentrations across all of our sites. And so that was the kind of starting point to start assessing, you know, what's kind of in these snakes and, and what health implications it might have. And, and after collecting them for three years, three seasons, we had a few hundred snakes to play with some, do some fancy statistics and count the parasites and count the pollution in them and kind of model against some of the blood 
biomarkers and body condition and yeah we found that the kind of combined metal pollution levels was statistically significant in having a negative association with body condition so the higher the total metals the lower the body condition in the snakes we looked at parasites as well and we found actually that the most polluted site had the least number of parasites and that parasites weren't really having a statistic association with health and body condition we actually found some parasites were higher in snakes with better body condition and that makes sense because these animals have co-evolved with these parasites and they naturally harbor them and so if you have a healthy animal it can have more parasites living on it right because they're an ecosystem in themselves so that was yeah kind of the core finding from my phd in the end uh, we got a lot of publicity from that and uh, such as yourself and you know it actually led to the state department over here reaching out and asking us about PFAS because they had measured PFAS in those same wetlands and were wondering, you know, if you're collecting snakes, can we do a little health assessment on them? So that kind of started this study, in which case I also reached out to CSIRO at the time who were working on PFAS and turtles, similar thing. And we started a collaboration there across the three organisations and did, you know, quite a, a fine scale metabolic assessment of PFAS. And that kind of led my transition into my current postdoc and research. And that study you, you referred to, and I'll include a link to the, the show notes. It's a readily available uh, study. It's, I'm going to quote it here. It's the bioaccumulation and metabolic impact of environmental PFAS residue on wild caught urban wetland tiger snakes. I'm going to get to that study in a sec, but are there any perks to having a PhD? I am working in one of the few positions that I think a PhD is required for. I got lucky. That's why I did a PhD. That was to kind of further going into the research field. And I know a PhD can be beneficial in maybe some industry space, consulting spaces as well, if you want to climb higher in the ranks. So I feel like it was beneficial for me. I think anecdotally, I've heard that you pretty much can't get a gig at CSIRO without a PhD. I was thinking more of like, you know, opening doors at, you know, in fancy restaurants and getting primo seats on planes <laughs> and stuff like that. And anything like that at all? I do use the doctor title on my plane tickets and um, <laughs> I haven't had any comments except I think one hostess kind of give me a double take and probably not believe that I was a doctor <laughs> given my uh, current dressing situation. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit rough. Yeah. That's kind of it. Let's talk about this study now. So why did you do this study in the first place? So we know PFAS is a big emerging contaminant of concern globally. This was my first exposure to PFAS doing this study. So the department over here, Department of Water and Environmental Regulations, they had done a Perth-based study to assess the baseline levels of PFAS in a lot of wetlands. Basically, they have tested three out of four of the wetlands that we were studying, and they found Herdsman Lake, again, our most contaminated site, was on the higher end of that scale. New tiger snakes live there, and part of this PFAS exploration global objective is we're trying to work out what's ending up in animals and people, and is it toxic? What are these levels of toxicity? So it was both a baseline and an exploratory study um, to try and assess some kind of potential health impact. PFAS, and Michael can attest this, Ocean Protect are, are very familiar with PFAS. It's a, a hot topic in our industry and becoming uh, hotter by uh, the day. And we have developed a, a, a solution to help remove PFAS from surface and groundwaters. There's a lot of interest in this space. I'm sure you can talk to Michael. Yeah, and look, I think the scary thing is with PFAS is that it's a forever chemical as we know, but also has some bioaccumulation. So that's 
horrific when you think about it getting into the food chain, whether it be snakes, frogs, insects, whether it be fish, you know, it is all the way through. And I suppose that's a scary thing. Once it's in, how do you get out? It is one of those really scary chemicals at the moment that we've seen that we're obviously really concerned about and want to do something about. But I think for the general listener who doesn't know much about out there, it is something you certainly want to stay away from. Unfortunately, a lot of critters in aquatic habitats don't have that choice. And fundamentally, often humans don't either. Like it's basically a, a forever a chemical, but it's it's everywhere as well. Uh, obviously, there are hot spots, uh, and we can talk about where some of the common sources of PFAS come from, but it's a major concern for sure. And that was the sort of question I had about this was, are these just standard wetlands in urban areas that there's no, well, it's not next to a fire station or an airport or anything like that. Is these just standard urbanised catchments, you know, mixed-use, residential, commercial, industrial? Yeah, so three or four of our tested wetlands, the three that were in, we could say, the, the urban Perth space, one of them is is pretty disconnected from stormwater. You know, there's quite a large vegetation and forest buffer so it would just occasionally get runoff from roads by the time it gets through that vegetation buffer. But Joondalup, uh, I believe, has a fire station nearby and there are a lot of uh, stormwater drains that feed into it from one side. Uh, but Herdsman Lake in particular, it's quite a modified wetland for over 150 years. They tried to dredge it so they could reclaim some of the space to build on. Then they realise this is where all the water in the landscape goes, so let's make it a bit of a flow through. And there is a big drain from Herdsman Lake that leads to the ocean, so they've kind of modified it to be that filter from the urban stormwater and the industrial areas. And so the water that gets into that lake is from quite a large urban area right near the city as well. That's a really good point. Like This is what I found really interesting is you've got three basically wetlands uh, water bodies in downstream of urban environments. One is basically separate. I think it's called McNess Lake or something like that. Lake McNess, yeah. Like McNess, yeah. Yep. Uh, and that obviously had quite low concentrations of PFAS, which you'd expect. But the catchment with the fire stations in it, and, and for people who aren't familiar, um, you often see high PFAS concentrations downstream of fire stations or areas where there's a lot of firefighting foam being used because PFAS is, um, can be very uh, present in high concentrations in firefighting foams. But the highest concentrations were actually in Herdsman's Lake, which is, yeah, it's, it's basically just downstream of an urbanised area. There's no major airports. There's no big key likely sources of PFAS contamination, which I found really interesting. Yeah, and I think, you know, when we're comparing to what we find in the water, which is what we tested as a comparison, um, in our particular study, we, we had a very small snapshot, you know, just a couple of water samples around the same amount of time. But the department had also sampled those waters twice in spring and autumn in the previous year. And when you look at at the PFAS profile, it was quite similar between Herdsman Lake and Joondalup, similar concentration, similar even distribution of mixtures of those particular compounds. But when you look at the snake, which are also bound to those wetlands, like they're not leaving and going out into the urban space. We find that the Herdsman Lake snakes were three to four times higher with PFOS, even though the water profiles were very similar, similar concentrations in the water. But we know with any contaminant in water, that depends on the day you're sampling, depends how much rain there's been, how much inflow, you know, how dried up the lake's been. So those environmental samples can be quite variable. But I think what we find in the animal is that a much better indicator as to the, the lifetime exposure. 
before we get too into the results, let's talk about the methods for just a, a little bit. So yeah, you've done a whole bunch of analyses, uh, water samples and snake PFAS concentrations basically across four different wetland sites um, in Perth or near Perth at least. I guess first question is why snakes? <laughs> if I had a choice, yeah, yeah. I'd want to, you know, look at frogs just yeah. personally. Yeah, none of us really tangle with tiger snakes at all. Yeah. Um, I usually give them a wide berth to the path and go the other way. Yeah, yeah. Very good question. I get that one a lot. Most honest answer is I love snakes. I'm a snake ecologist. <laughs> That's my background. Uh, I wanted to do a PhD on snakes. Quite difficult in Australia to do that because of the danger factor and also they're just a difficult animal to find and get good sample sizes of. But we had a really cool system here in Perth where we could find them in these wetlands and a lot of them. And I guess it just kind of one thing led to another where I was interested in coming at it from the snake angle. And then when I looked at the broader wetland and, and the health implication and the um, you know ecosystem implication, you start doing some digging and you go, well, hang on, snakes, these guys are top of the food chain out here. Once they're big adults, nothing's really eating them. They're acting as a top predator. They are eating mainly frogs, which are another bioindicator, uh, but they also do eat birds and mammals. So they're, they're kind of reflecting that upper end of the food chain. Um, and they are really bound to these wetlands. So you know, we could take it from the angle of, well, they're actually a quite a good indicator of, of wetland condition. I guess another key feature is that they're quite hardy as well. So if they have a, a big gollop of PFAS, uh, which is uh, recognised as a potential carcinogen, they're not just going to uh, hopefully just fall over, uh, you know, the next hour. They're probably going to, you know, uh, live, uh, they're quite resilient, I guess, but at the same time, they're probably, if they are sick or otherwise, you know, um, in poor health, they're going to sort of struggle on, albeit with a lower weight or lower vitality, energy levels, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. And that we find that with a lot of larger reptiles, it's a similar species like to, uh, freshwater turtles, marine turtles, crocs, um, those kind of things that they get receive a lot of uses, bioindicators as well because of that. So they can kind of, take these lower levels, uh, these more sublethal levels, and it might take a lot longer, years or decades to um, start seeing the effects. Cool. Let's, let's talk about the results now. So first up, like so there's four different wetland systems or water bodies. You've measured PFAS contamination. I'm looking at the results now. So Herdsman Lake has a mean PFAS concentration totals of 322 um, uh, micrograms. Oh, this is in, in the snakes, snakes yep. themselves. Can you talk to the uh, water concentrations first? So you're saying the herdsman's pretty similar to one other one? Yes. So for those looking at the paper, that's figure two. And we can see between herdsman and Lake Joondalup, they're about 0.1 to 0.12 total concentration. That's micrograms per litre. And the profile, which is, I think we've got 12 different PFAS compounds. There's varying concentrations between them, but I guess pretty similar across all 12 when you look at them. Bibra Lake is less than half of that, and up in Yanchet, which is in a national mm. park, we couldn't find any PFAS above the detection limit. And that kind of makes sense uh, when you look at the wetlands and what's around them and what their historic exposure might be. But then when you compare to the snakes, like I said, yeah, we were finding between 100 to 750 micrograms per kilogram in the liver, which is orders of magnitude higher than what we were finding in the water. And... Most of that is PFOS. That's the compound. So out of the similar 12 that we picked up, you know, 90 to 95% of that concentration, total PFAS is just made up of, of PFOS, which is, I believe, that older long chain PFAS that was used in the firefighting foams um, historically and is now banned. That is frightening because you look at the background concentration of the lakes where you would have sampled and you're sort of 0.5 to 
0.125 micrograms per litre. And then you look at the accumulation in the snake liver, that is just, it's an order of magnitude higher yep. again, which is just absolutely frightening. So you sit there and think that, especially like Yanchep, oh, we don't have a problem because it's below the limit of reading. Well, yet hang on, we still have PFAS in the liver. Yeah, yeah, we, we picked up very small trace amounts even up there. So whether they got that from the lake and we just didn't sample the right part or whether they've been moving out beyond. But, you know, like we said, it's a forever chemical, so maybe they only need to be exposed once and it, it stays in them. We don't know how long it takes their bodies to process, how much they can process or get rid of or shed. Another really frightening thing from my perspective is just the units. You know, we're talking microgram per litre and micrograms per kilogram. We're talking about very, very, very small concentrations. But the potential implications, yeah, like it's a half a teaspoon in an Olympic-sized swimming pool, it's it's nothing. but the chemical uh, comes with such a high potential risk and potency. It's a real cause for concern despite really, really low concentrations. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Um, so you talk about PFOS. So just to recap, where would that most of that PFOS be coming from, do you think? Yeah, so I, that's a little bit beyond my area mm-hmm. of expertise, but I believe it was one of the main chemicals used in those historic legacy firefighting foams. Um, right. Mike, you might be able to comment more on that. Yeah, look, it's interesting. Um, you know, we're seeing it now starting to pop up in areas where we wouldn't expect. And that's what really um, got my interest with, with your paper was about that, look, we're looking at just normal urbanised catchments, groundwater where you, you don't have a fire station nearby, you don't have an airport nearby, and it's just showing up. And that's the, the scary thing for us is that we're seeing, we've only done limited research, so we're not, you know, so peer-reviewed blind randomised studies here, but we can't pick up with the samples that we've taken as well where it's come from because there's no logical source. So we're sort of going, okay, cool. They were around since the 60s or whatever it was. They've just been bouncing around the atmosphere, you know, obviously in the clothes, cooking uh, utensils, things like that. But really they're just flushing off everything that we have and just going into the, you know, the water supply and going into the groundwater and yeah, basically uh, the animals are picking it up. So it's yeah, we don't know either. And this is what's really interesting is that, yes, you understand next one airport, there's firefighting foam, you get it. Yes, a fire station training facility, firefighting foam, you get it. All those are no-brainers. But the ones in just normal urbanised catchments that just show up, we don't get that. And that's the scary thing. It's no surprise to me, but just before we go into the detail here, like we've got to, probably should define a few terms. We use the term PFAS, which is polyfluoroalkyl substance, and, and there are a number of different chemicals within that group, but PFOS, and the reason we use the acronym is because it stands for, I'm going to read it out, perfluorooctane sulfonate or perfluorooctanate uh, sulfonic acid. There's some uh, quiz questions that you'll crush it uh, on trivia um, if you ever get asked that, but we shouldn't be surprised that we don't really can't really identify where this is coming from because it's basically coming from a whole bunch of different sources. It's not just firefighting foams. It's from basically anything used to resist stains or oil or, or, or water, and that includes uh, carpets, clothing, you name it. I think one of the dramas with when you've got lots of people and activity and imperviousness and stormwater, all of these things contribute to basically taking whatever's in the catchment and just washing it into the downstream waterway or water body environment. This is just a hypothesis, but like everything we see in stormwater, urbanisation. Urbanisation is the direct correlation to the load. I think that's what's clear at the moment based on what we've seen anecdotally. So, But yes, certainly an area that's 
be out for more research. So let's just touch on the results as well, like elevated concentrations of PFAS in these urban wetlands. There's elevated concentrations in the, the snakes. And I'm guessing when, you, when we talk about snake concentrations, can you just explain what part of the snake you're actually referring to in terms of the body analyses? The organ that we chose to test was the liver. Usually the liver for most contaminants is kind of has the highest concentration. That's where when the body takes any contaminant in, it makes its way through. Uh, the liver kind of captures it, does a whole bunch of detoxification processes. For any contaminant that is lipophilic, so they like binding to lipids or acting like lipids, the liver has, has a lot of fatty tissue in there, so they can kind of get stuck in there. And so we use the liver to represent the whole snake. So we assume that if it's high in the liver, that means that that snake has you know, probably got it throughout its body as well um, and it's had a high exposure over its life. Obviously, to get that liver tissue, that means we have to sacrifice the animal to get there. So we try and do the smallest sample sizes possible. But that's the first step, taking out that key organ, testing that to work out, you know, what, what's the value for this animal um, in terms of pollution. And that's the thing about PFAS. It's a very, by its very nature or design, it's designed to be slippery and, you know, goes through quickly. But it but what it does do, which is another scary part of PFAS, is it basically um, absorbs or, or sticks to your fatty tissues and whatever. So that's probably why the, the snakes are uh, bioaccumulating because obviously a snake consumes the whole frog mm-hmm. or the whole bird, whatever. So they're basically eating all the fatty tissues, whatever associated yep. with that organism. So we're, we're seeing high concentrations in the in the snake's livers. Are we seeing any trend in terms of it? the health implications associated with those concentrations then? The core health metric that I could measure just using, you know, gross measurements on the animal is called body condition. And that's like a, it's a number relationship between the length of the snake and how much it weighs. So obviously, if you standardize it for, say, a meter long snake, if they're over a certain weight, they've got high body condition. If they're under a certain weight, they've got low body condition. With snakes in particular, that body condition uh, their mass is kind of made up of 50% of their fat bodies. Unlike humans, uh, snakes kind of grow just a single row of fat bodies in, in the lower half. They, they just kind of look like these big, juicy cells. So 50% of their body condition is made up of their fat, and the other 50% is, is kind of their muscle tone. Snakes are just like a big, long rib cage and muscle, some of their organ weight as well. Now, snakes change their organ weight throughout the year seasonally because if they don't eat for a long time, you know, they don't want to burn through all this unnecessary energy maintaining all these organs so they can reduce it over time. So they do fluctuate a lot. And that's why it kind of is more valuable to use a lot of snakes in the population, because if you pick up a skinny snake, it may mean it just hasn't eaten in a while, not necessarily sick. But when we did the statistics using the best models we have available and compared snake body condition against how much total PFAS they had in their liver, we did find a, a significant negative correlation. Uh, so that is the higher the PFAS, the lower the body condition in the snakes. And it only accounted for 12% of the variation, which means it was a very weak association. So it was significant, but you know, we're saying that the PFAS is probably just accounting for 12% of their lower body condition and that other, would that be 88% could be from the heavy metals, which I found in, in my previous study, that was 20% of the body condition. And then it could be, you know, feeding effects, diet of that site and, and all these other various things. But then we also used a whole bunch of new fancy technologies we, that we call metabolomics. That's what our research group at CSIRO does. And that's when we take 
various organs. So we took the ovaries and testes of the snake. We took a muscle sample and, and we took a sample of that fat body. And for all those tissues, they kind of get mashed up and, and go through some fancy analytical machines that can measure hundreds of metabolites, uh, a metabolite being a whole bunch of different chemicals, biochemical molecules that are just naturally a part of the body. And they're all part of the, the body's cellular cycles and growth cycles. And we can measure them untargeted and get this kind of huge snapshot of, of all the chemical processes in each of these tissues. And then we can compare that to the PFAS. And our strongest result that we found was snakes with higher PFAS did have a bunch of associations with a whole bunch of chemical groups involved in these energy use pathways in the muscle. It could go, when we say uh, it's been altered by PFAS, it could be higher or lower. That means we could be finding higher concentration of a certain chemical or lower concentration than a certain chemical um, in relation to PFAS, and they, they can be all combined in, in all different directions. So we haven't gone down to the depth as, as to whether they're higher or lower, but we've found that they are different to what a normal un-PFAS contaminated snake should have. And it makes sense that our body condition might be a little bit lower because if the cellular pathways in their muscle are being impacted for energy use and production, you know, snakes are very energy efficient animals. And, and if they're overproducing or underproducing energy in their muscle to do with growth, digestion, reproduction, all that kind of stuff, we could start seeing that they're kind of losing body condition over that. So, so the biological patterns, you know, match up with what we're seeing physically. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So as an example, like if, if the snake relies obviously on energy to create fast movement to catch a frog or a bird, and if it's a feeling a bit lethargic because of an impaired energy system, it's obviously going to be at a less able to catch that frog or snake. Is that yeah, what you sort of mean? yeah and um, escape predators as well. You know, right. their, their response is to be to quick and flee, and that uses a big burst of energy. These patterns are, have been shown again and again with other wildlife of that the PFAS is kind of, um, the body can kind of confuse the PFAS for certain lipids that are involved in these energy production systems. And I believe the, the body kind of takes the PFAS instead of the lipids in some cases. Uh, and then, yeah, just can't function as usual. Like, obviously, there's a, a bit of a chemical cocktail in these water bodies. So how do we determine or can we determine how much of an impact PFAS is having and not something else? Like you mentioned, yeah, it probably accounts for 12% or whatever of body condition, but uh, can we differentiate PFAS impacts to other potential you know, heavy metal impacts, for example? You can do it 
With statistical models, you just need a really big sample size to do it properly. So that's number of individuals. We want individuals from different sites as well. Four sites is not adequate because, you know, if there's a big influence from this particular site, that could pull all your data in one direction. And, you know, testing these contaminants, especially PFAS, is super expensive. Mm. Um, so if you want to start throwing in metals on top of that, pesticides on top of those samples, and, and you start getting 20 to 40 uh, different compounds in there, and you want to tease out the effects of all of them, you know, the sample size of animals we're talking about is in the thousands to be able to statistically test that. So I think at least the models that we're using, you know, giving us an arbitrary value of percent of variation, like this 12%, it can at least, you can tease out that way. You can test one contaminant at a time and just say, you know, maybe this much percent of the impact is from that. But the postdoc that I've planned to do, which is doing similar work on frogs in Brisbane and Perth. We are hoping to capture metals as well to at least look for some interactions between yeah, our, our legacy heavy metals and the PFAS in there and using a much larger sample size and more sites, you know, um, up to 20 sites across both cities. We talk about, you know, 12%. It sounds potentially not a, a massive amount, but when you're sort of living on the edge as, as wildlife is, essentially, they're basically elite athletes. And if there's a 1% or 2% deterioration in their health, the implications of that are absolutely enormous. Obviously, we're looking at snakes, and you've referred to a few other studies around other sort of uh, species, but looking at doing this analysis of frogs, but I don't want to put you on the spot, but is there something that we can sort of uh, imply from these analyses, like we're showing some sort of impacts, abnormal body functions, uh, 12% deterioration in body condition? What are the potential impacts associated with, say, lower trophic species like frogs and macroinvertebrates associated with elevated PFAS levels in water bodies? You know, like you mentioned, it's it's kind of like death by a thousand cuts, right? Mm. Um, we're only measuring one of those cuts at the moment. Mm. The interest that I have in this space is we're trying to determine what levels cause harm. What's that first level that causes harm and how significant that harm is? Because if just PFAS was the only stressor on these animals, they probably could survive with that low body condition. They could recover. And same with the lower trophic animals as well. But I think once we start seeing levels that cause a huge impact on fitness and, and the main measures of fitness is reproductive output. So, you know, lower reproductive output, weaker offspring and straight up survival, uh, which is how long they live. If they're dying early, if, if the tox toxicity is high enough to kill them, that's when we start seeing a shift in the ecosystem um, or a very noticeable shift. So maybe what we're seeing now is, is just the first signs. Like I guess this is the global research field at the moment, right? Mm. Everyone's coming in it from all angles, just trying to measure as much as we can what's out there. What, what are these levels that start causing this kind of fitness shift? Look, from my perspective, ideally you take a precautionary approach. And I'm just thinking, and Michael can attest this as, an, as a fellow stormwater engineer, there's a real push to integrate wetlands in particular into urban environments. So, for example, in Western Sydney and, and Melbourne, there's a lot of development pressure. And one of the key proposed solutions to treat stormwater is to put in wetlands that obviously attract a whole bunch of ecology. My concern is we're basically lining these ecosystems up for a failure. Uh, we're creating a, a toxic environment and attracting species that are going to get sicker, basically. We've been thinking about this for a while, especially with the metals and also the blue-green algae that we sometimes get in Western Sydney from just from the heat. 
um, and the ex excessive nutrients in stormwater and these water bodies just sitting there just cooking like soup in summer. The whole, you know, part of water sensitive urban design is to integrate these you know, these treatment systems into the urban landscape and have a connection with it. You know, and we've always been concerned about that because you just really don't know what's coming off and running into these, say, wetlands. And if we're going to integrate the landscape, that's fine. But I think we need to really disconnect them from the community in some way. And that's what sort of concerns me is that looking at your research with the snakes, well, then, you know, it's great in theory to have a wetland, but should we be looking potentially at something else that is not necessarily so much or potential for human contact, which is the alarming thing for us. And I wonder what your thoughts on that were, because we're supposed to play, live and play around these, these water treatment devices, and really they're water treatment devices to remove pollution. And I just don't think, I know there'll be cons some consultants who are you know, a lot smarter than me and they'll disagree, but at the end of the day, I don't think it's very wise. Again, a precautionary approach like Brad said, but have you got any thoughts on that with you know, contact with, say, these wetlands and you know, from our space, integrating this into the landscape and what concerns you'd have with that? From my experience in coming from Western Sydney myself, so those kind of bigger wetlands and, and now Perth-based wetlands is, you know, we have the number one issue is like water movement through a city. And once you concrete everything and urbanise it, water's got to go somewhere. So so it's a must to have wetlands. We've got to redivert water. And that's obviously going to bring everything that we are associated with. From an urban ecosystem perspective, these wetlands uh, often have some kind of protection with their vegetation. You know, they're never going to be developed. So they're actually becoming like an island of vegetation habitat for a lot of these animals. So some of these wetlands, like Herdsman Lake, you know, our main study site is a huge well-known bird birding site. And there's a huge list of species that live there. And a lot of people go there and, and look at them. And there's also that whole green space, mental health connection people like to have a lake out the back of their house and go down there. So it's quite hard to disconnect people because the wetland will take up a large footprint on the ground. And it's a bit hard to kind of say, you know, let's segregate these wetlands to be just our water treatment polluted sites versus let's have this nice big happy space um, where people love to, to go. And, and it's a really nice space, green space to have in your urban ecosystem. And when we've got legacy contamination that's already in there, you know, that's a difficult thing to clean up. But, but I guess the easiest solution is to try and filter that water that's coming in, at least to try and reduce new input of pollution. But, you know, as we know, it's complex. Um, if there's constant production of these pollutants, how do you have a, a clean space that people can use versus a fenced off dirty space that's covering the same footprint in a small uh, urban environment? If I can put my commercial uh, hat on for a sec, we do have a solution for that. The Stormfield PFAS technology that were developed have basically ideally suited to this, to disconnect the urban environment to downstream waterways or water bodies and filter pollutants, including PFAS. Uh, it's highly effective at removing PFAS. Um, we're looking at 98% or thereabouts PFAS removals just for, through one pass of the filter system. But I think currently we don't see that in our stormwater industry. And maybe we should be seeing that. Like uh, I'm all for disconnection of urban environments and waterways and integrating water features into urban environments for all the reasons you discussed. But my concern is that if we are creating an ecological habitat and attracting a whole bunch of uh, species, snakes, birds, frogs, etc., there's almost a, a responsibility to make sure that they're, we're not setting them up home in a toxic waste area. Yeah, if we can integrate something to 
remove or filter PFAS from the incoming uh, water into these systems, happy days, happy days. Yeah, for sure. And I think something, or a group of species like birds, you know, that move between environments um, mm. is is even if you create, you know, a stormwater system example that, that has the plants that are required to filter out the PFAS or the contaminants of concern, and then your frogs get in there and you, maybe your local fish or whatever, and they become contaminated, but they stay in that space and, and that contaminant stays in that wetland turns over when you have something like birds that move around and that now by having that wildlife there you know you're potentially spreading the exposure across a larger landscape my concern with using biological treatment systems for uh treating or removing pfas is that they're not very effective to the best of my knowledge like yeah look like the idea of a a wetland treating um pfas laden waters before it goes into a, a bigger or a larger more important wetland to the best of my knowledge because PFAS is such a difficult pollutant to remove. Uh, like in the storm-filled PFAS cartridge, we have a very fancy uh, media which is specifically developed to absorb PFAS. So some plants and some mulch and some soil in a wetland or other bioretention facility just ain't going to cut the mustard, basically. Michael, you probably talk this better than I can. Yeah, look, it's it's one of those things where you need – there's a few different types of media. We all know what it is in different types of carbons. There's hundreds of types of carbons. And how you treat those carbons, and then also ion exchange resins as well, which are great at, at removing PFAS, but but the biological treatment systems just don't have that space. So you know you can't assimilate, you know metals like you can. You know you can assimilate metals with plants and things like that, but PFAS is just something that that can't. And obviously, the bioaccumulation is really what happens with the fauna, not the flora. So the wetland more becomes like a toxic soup that just sits there with the PFAS ready for everything they'd eat it. And the fauna just cycles over and the concentrations will just steadily and slowly increase. And to your point before, what is a toxicity level that's, you know, that we can deal with not only the fauna but ourselves? At some point in time, you know, birds fly away, they eat the fish, the fish have it. At what point in time is it going to be toxic for us? Because I don't think that those answers to those questions are too far away. I read the other day, there was a study in South China Sea, and they're looking at the concentrations of, of PFAS in raw fish, and they just took the flesh and basically ground it up, froze it, pulverized and put it through a mass spectrometer and just worked the results through. There were up to eight micrograms per kilo what? PFAS in fish. Yeah. And it's like, wow, we're probably buying some of this stuff excluding Brad, of course, but we're probably buying some of this stuff <laughs> in our supermarkets and things like that. So you sort of go, we're obviously ac- accumulating and eating PFAS day by day. We just don't even know it. And at what point are we going to have an issue, a real problem? We already do. We already do have a big issue. Like, And this is the, the, the other scary, there's so many scary elements to PFAS. One more to add is that we don't know what a safe level is. So we, we keep on setting these arbitrary targets based on very little information and um, we look to achieve them, generally don't, they could be just basically too uh, high already. Like we're limited by the ability of our laboratory systems to detect them in the first mm-hmm. place. And we're, to- we're talking about, like I said, micro- micro- 0.001 micrograms per kilogram. I think the latest target I've seen is 0.00023 microgram per kilogram is one of uh, uh, discharge targets that we've um, been tasked to achieve just recently. So... And it, what's to say that's even safe? We could talk all day about this. It's a fascinating area. I'm keen to know, you mentioned you, you're looking at a few other wetland systems, water bodies in Brisbane as well. 
Is there other information around comparable PFAS studies looking at other wetlands and lake systems? Have you got a feel for how Perth wetlands, for example, compare to Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, overseas, et cetera? Part of our team at CSIRO have been doing a quite a big PFAS freshwater turtle study around Brisbane, and that's expanding more. So there's a bunch of papers out there um, already if you're interested and um, been doing a fine-scale metabolic assessment on these freshwater turtles. And so we have some comparative numbers there. I've been over to Brisbane two months ago and I sampled cane toads from six sites. So we're in the process of of seeing what cane toads are exposed to. Again, being one of those interesting, you know, frogs that's living around a wetland, but they don't really live in the water. They're kind of on the ground nearby. So seeing how much PFAS is is ending up from the polluted water systems into like a more terrestrial frog, we'll have those results, you know, hopefully by the end of this year. And I will be back there to do some more local frog stuff. So we'll have frogs from Perth and, and Brisbane to compare. And that'll be really interesting because the Brisbane sites are all uh, flowing water, r- rivers and creeks and things, whereas Perth, all my sites are enclosed wetlands. So we do have that uh, different variable, which will be interesting to just see, I guess, availability of PFAS. And, you know, like I said, it's you get an arbitrary value from a water and a soil sediment sample from your site. Um, but when we're talking about compounds that bioaccumulate, if we compare it, maybe we're measuring it's the first time they've been exposed to that PFAS and it was a big dose. But if we check those same animals again five years later um, in that habitat, are we going to see those numbers go up? It's so interesting. The science seems really new, but it's a, it's a, a problem that's been around for a long time. Like we're talking... PFAS was, I think, introduced in the 1970s, used all over the place, predominantly firefighting foams, and then obviously Teflon pans and waterproofing, whatever. It just seems bizarre that we're just starting to get our head around the magnitude of the problem. It's bizarre. Like you've done this snake study, which is, a, to the best of my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like a, a world first study looking at snake health implications. And it's shown that, yeah, there is a link between body condition and, and PFAS concentrations, how that impacts on other species and or how it compares. And also from a human health perspective, you know, when Michael's uh, eating his uh, sashimi, you know, uh, how's that going to impact him? Like, I, I'm concerned. I'm thinking, you know, uh, my muscles, for example, are a lot bigger than Michael's. <laughs> Do you think that might be due to Michael's Steady, easy. Come on, man. <laughs> Michael's <laughs> elevated PFAS concentrations in his physique, or you know, one can only speculate. Oh, there's a lot of variables going in there. She did express. But look, gee whiz, this is this had really has been a fascinating chat. I remember speaking to you a, a couple of years ago, and it was super fascinating. And obviously, we went down the detail of how do you catch snakes, and you ever been bitten, and what's the dramas, and how do you avoid snakes, whatever. We're not going to touch on that today, because uh, but this study that you've done really is groundbreaking. It really has some significant implications, I think, for particularly the the stormwater industry, the one that we're in. I still look at it and go. We're putting in all these wetlands immediately downstream of urban environments, like big industrial areas. Like you'd mentioned Western Sydney, there's massive 10,000 hectare industrial areas. And a key proposed solution is to put wetlands downstream of these environments, massive wetlands, which obviously going to attract a whole bunch of uh, ecology. And I think the implications of that, I think the industry, if I'm honest, are completely oblivious to the magnitude of the problem that they are creating. And I think it's- No idea. No idea. No idea. This study, from my perspective, having looked at it in a fair bit of detail and spoken to you, this study has significant implications to our industry. And if anything, alarm bells should be ringing to every stormwater engineer across Australia and overseas. 
fascinating and I cannot wait to see what you guys find in the future. You've just, as a side note, booked yourself a spot to come back and tell us about the uh, results of the, your turtle surveys around Brisbane. We probably should land this plan, but any final words, Michael, before we uh, sign off? Oh, look, just to go on your points, Brad, I think this is a real wake-up call for the, the, the stormwater industry. Yes, we want to integrate our treatment measures, but you know, at what cost? And I think we should be trying to strip our PFAS before we actually integrate. And you can see from, from Damien's study, 0.5 to 0.125 micrograms per litre can lead to 320 micrograms per kilo in, in, in these snakes. That is just off the chart when you think about it. So it might seem like a small problem. But in reality, I think this is something that's coming up on us very fast. And at the moment, we have little solutions to the problem, which is frightening. Damien, this has been a fascinating chat. All I can say is uh, keep up the great work. Congratulations, obviously, you and your team on a really impressive study. Uh, well done on co- joining the Cool Cats of CSIRO. They're a fantastic organization. We've had many CSIRO guests on our podcast already. They're all legends. Yeah, like I said, keep up the great work and and thank you so much for uh, sharing your expertise and time with us today and honestly blowing our minds. Uh, It's been fascinating. Yeah, thanks, Brad and Mike. Um, Like I said, we'll have some frog stuff coming out. We'll have turtles, we'll have crocs. Yeah, let's regroup in a couple of years and (laughs) we can see what's going on in in more of these aquatic organisms. If you need someone to help you with your crocodile wrangling, uh, Michael's just volunteered. Um, So um, he's only got four kids uh, and a wife at home that'll, uh, you know, (laughs) they'll move on quickly. Look, 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 I'll take the tail. You can take the head. It's fine. (laughs) Deal. Done, done, sorted. Well, look, Damien, Michael, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, uh, Damien, keep up the great work and can't wait to uh, rendezvous again in one or two years' time. No worries. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Damien. Boom, boom. Shake the room. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.